decided to tag along as two of his disciples were traveling to another city. And he got involved with them on a more intimate level there. But we're going to focus on um, verses 25 through 27. Now, before somebody accuses me of being a one-trick pony, because I've used this passage over and over and over again, remember on the first of the year, I told you we were going to do this. So this was planned ahead of time. We are going back to this passage, this Road to Emmaus story, and there's a reason behind it. Verses 25 through 27. It says that, Then he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Does anybody remember what that passage is on the front of the bulletin today? Psalm 40, verse 7. Anybody remember that passage? Behold, in the volume of the book, it is written of me. That is a key passage. Uh, I don't remember how many of you were here last year when we were taught through the, the book of Psalms. But that is a key passage because it ties everything together. It says that everything that is in this book is about Jesus, whether it's Jesus himself or us and our relationship with him or what he has done to restore that relationship between us and God. Everything is about that. It's all about Jesus in this book. How many of you believe that? I would hope so. If not, we'll work on that. But we're going to look specifically at that one because this particular story um, is Jesus' appearance to his two disciples on the road to Emmaus after he showed himself to Mary at the tomb. Remember, this is day one. This is Resurrection Sunday. Just after Jesus rose from the grave, he met Mary in the garden at the tomb. Right after that, he stuck out his thumb and hitched a ride with these two guys on the road to Emmaus. Go to the next slide, if you will, there, please, David. Jesus did not, right out the gate, jump up and say, Ta-da, here I am, to all of his disciples. He did not go out and find Peter and say, Peter, do you really love me? After all, you denied me three times. You know, that didn't happen until further along before Jesus uh, ascended. He didn't even just jump up to Thomas and say, see, stick your finger here. You believe me now? That happened about a week later. So Jesus didn't put his emphasis on those things right away. What was the thing that Jesus emphasized when he came out of the tomb? I just lost myself again. I think, uh, it's, I don't know if this is batteries or not, but there we go. What did Jesus emphasize when he came out of the tomb? Well, he, he said hi to Mary and told her not to cling to him. But go to the next slide, if you will, there. Jesus, with this particular 
trip here. He went and found two of his lesser-known disciples, and he joined them in their daily business. The the nice thing about that is Jesus didn't go to the the bigwigs, the the top eleven of his his disciples, the apostles. He didn't go hunt them down initially. He went out and found two of his lesser-known people. We only know their names because they come up in this passage. One was named Simon and one was named Cleopas. And that's all we ever hear of them. So two of his lesser-known disciples, but he hunted them down first. Isn't that good to know that Jesus wasn't necessarily going to just target the apostles, but right out of the tomb, he went to go find people like you and me. That should be a good comfort to you, shouldn't it? Well, he joined with them in their daily business, and then the next thing that he did, he had a Bible study. He had a long Bible study. We're not going to do a long Bible study today. Some people want to get out of here and go to the Super Bowl. Uh, some people have family coming over to their house. We know that you've got to leave here at about 12 o'clock. So if you do have to leave before I'm finished, feel free. But take this word with you. So Jesus decided that one of the most important things for him to do right out of the grave was to do a Bible study. And what he did Go to the next slide there. It says, he began at Moses and all the prophets and expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now it says when he began at Moses, that means that he began in the Old Testament. There was no New Testament, by the way, at this time. I don't know if that's a shock to any of you, but there was no New Testament. The Bible was the Old Testament. And when it says beginning with Moses, that means he started at the first five books of the Bible. That that is the Pentateuch. Those are the first five books. They were written by God through the hand of Moses. So he began at Genesis and started teaching everybody about himself. Everything that was in that book that pointed to him. This must have been an incredibly long Bible study because we would take at least a year just to go through the book of Genesis and point to Jesus everywhere. We're not going to do that, thankfully, uh, for some people. <laughs> but, but for the next few weeks, we are going to look at some of the things in the Old Testament that pertain to Jesus and to us, specifically prophecy that he expounded upon here to his disciples. Jesus' Bible study began in the book of Moses, Genesis. The first thing that we're going to do um, is to get a grasp, though, of what biblical prophecy really is. And why does that matter? Now, when we talk about prophecy, there are two ways that prophecy is used. Uh, This is on your sermon notes page, so... um, on the first part of it. And you can fold over this page and stick it in your Bible. Thank Don for this idea. It was a really good idea. I don't know why we haven't done that before. So Jesus placed a high priority on Bible study. And we're going to do the same thing. 
Point number two there. Prophecy includes two things. Switch to the next slide, if you will. Um, it, it includes, and it's not on this, so just listen carefully. It includes two things. Foretelling the future. F-O-R-E-T-E-L-L-I-N-G. The future. Foretelling the future. But the other way that prophecy is used is forth-telling the word of God. And that's forth, F-O-R-T-H, dash, telling the word of God. It's important to note these two things. For the next few weeks, we are going to focus on the first of them, the foretelling of the future. But whenever you see a... a <coughs> Excuse me. Excuse me, just a moment. Whenever you see an Old Testament prophet or a New Testament prophet, <coughs> their main job was to foretell. <coughs> Excuse me, it's caught in my throat. <coughs> uh, sorry, Ted was to foretell the word of God. In the New Testament, when you talk about the gift of prophecy, that's what it's referring to mostly, is the ability to expound on God's word and to tell other people what God has said in a manner that they can understand. But right now, we're going to be looking at the Old Testament and prophecy where we're talking about foretelling or saying ahead of time what is going to happen. Go to the, oh, there, there it is. That's the slide I wanted. So why is this important to us here? Well, the Bible happens to be about one-third prophecy. Did you know that? Almost one-third of the Bible, and some people say even more than one-third of the Bible, is prophetic in nature. There is more prophecy in here than most people will ever realize. And as you begin to study the word of God, you are going to run into this prophecy. So it's important that you know how to handle it and how to investigate it, how to study it, and how to apply it to your life. The Bible is about a third prophecy. Now, there are some people that will dispute that. They say it's only about a quarter prophecy. The reason that they, boy, he's smiley today. That's good. Uh, the reason that they say that it's only about a quarter prophecy versus the one-third prophecy is because they don't understand prophecy. They understand prophecy from a Western mindset. How many of you grew up in the West? How many of you are not from Europe, Asia, and so forth? Uh, Asia, China, um, South uh, Africa, and so forth. We grew up here in the Western portion of the world. We have a Western mindset. We think of prophecy as somebody comes up and says, it's going to start raining at 2 o'clock today, and it is going to continue to rain until 3 o'clock. And we watch, and we see that the clouds open up at 2 o'clock, and then they stop dumping at 3 o'clock, and we say, that was prophetic. That is the Western mindset. That's not the Jewish mindset. Why is that important? 
Who was this written to initially? To the Jews. We need to understand what God wrote in the manner that God wrote it to the people that God wrote it to. Now, he did write it, write it to us, but he wrote it first to them, and we need to understand what he was saying to them. Now, the Jewish mindset of prophecy is completely different. They see the Bible um, written in um, a different form. And um, we'll go through, um, well, let me just skip to this slide again, sorry. The Bible is approximately a third prophecy. Biblical prophecy is not just a statement of, of uh, future event and its fulfillment. There are several forms of prophecy you need to know. But the, the point that I want to make here is that God is faithful. God is going to do exactly what he said he's going to do. That's one of the reasons that we can trust this book more than anything else is because we see that God is 100% accurate in what he says is going to happen. 100%. One of the best proofs for that Bible that's sitting right there for it being the word of God is the Fulfilled prophecy. There is no other scripture given by any other religion that has fulfilled prophecy like this Bible does. None of the Buddhists can do that. None of the Mohammedists can do that. The Latter-day Saints people can't do that. They can't point to fulfilled prophecy, but we can. We can show everybody 100% of the time that God is accurate. He means what he says. But today we're going to look at three different types of biblical prophecy to give you a grounding of what we're going to look at for the next few weeks. Go to the next slide, if you will, David. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. God wrote through the Holy Spirit in Isaiah, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do my pleasure. How many of you actually remember ever reading that in Isaiah? Don't remember that, but it is right there. That is a core because God is saying, I know the end from the beginning. Why? Because I laid it out. God exists outside of our time domain. I don't know if you, you understand that or not, but God exists at the beginning of creation as well as the end of time right now. That's why when Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration uh, and when Jesus was talking about to the Pharisees about, you know, our God is the God of Abraham. He is Abraham's God right now. Abraham's not dead. He is in existence right now. He is the great I am. He is in existence at every point in time. He knows it all because he exists at every point in time. He knows the end from the beginning. Go to the next slide, if you will. There are three types of biblical prophecy that we need to go through. And we'll go through this as quickly as I can so we can get out of here on time. 
But the first of the types of biblical prophecy is prophetic statements. These are the, these are the X is going to happen on Y date. Be prepared for it. We see examples of this in the book of Kings, Second uh, Kings, Second uh, Chronicles, the, the siege of Samaria. Elisha told the king when he was at the siege of, of uh, Samaria that the next day, after the people had been starving for months, he said, there will be so much food in the streets, you won't know what to do with it all. And one of his officers said, yeah, ha, that ain't ever going to happen. And Elisha turned to that officer and said, because you didn't believe it, you're going to see it happen, but you won't get to partake of it. And what happened? Well, we know that the, there were four lepers that were outside the gates, and they went to the, the camp of the Syrian army that was besieging Jerusalem and found that God had chased away all of the enemy during the night, and they'd left all of their foodstuffs and everything behind. And so everybody came out and raided that camp, and there was food in abundance for everybody. But that officer that had mocked God's word he was, he was told to stand at the gate and make sure that people go through in an orderly fashion. People didn't listen, and they trampled him to death. So he got to see all of that food, but he didn't get to partake of any of it. That is prophetic statement. You will see that throughout the scripture. X is going to happen, and it does. We also see this incredibly in the book of Daniel. There are portions of the book of Daniel, if you haven't read through that one, you, it'll drive you crazy trying to figure it out sometimes. But there are chapters in there that line out the history of the world from the time of Daniel's captivity in Babylon through Christ. And it's so accurate that people, historians today, are looking at the Bible and saying, that book could not have been written you know, when it, they claim it was written at the time of Daniel in Babylon because it, pro, it uh, told everything that was going to happen through the different dynasties that came about over the, the next hundreds of years. But we know that it was, that it was accurate because, you know, who's ever heard of the guy named Alexander the Great? Anybody remember him? Conquered the known world at that time. And as he was conquering, he would besiege a capital city, and if they didn't uh, treat him nicely, he would go in and he would burn it to the ground. Well, the Jews were afraid of that happening, too, when he came to their territory. They said, what are we going to do? And somebody said, well, let's go out and welcome him with open arms. And so the priests and the rabbis went out, and they pulled out the book of Daniel, and they met Alexander the Great, and they showed Alexander the Great where Daniel had prophesied that he was going to come in, and he was going to conquer the world. And he was so amazed at that, he left the city untouched. There is a lot of prophetic statement throughout this book. You need to understand what that is and how to deal with it. But there is another type of prophecy that you need to look at 
the hidden prophecy. These are things that are hidden in names and places. And then, then the third form of prophecy is prophecy in patterns that are established. Um, go to the next slide, if you will, David. And we're going to skip over this one because we just covered it. So go to the next slide. Prophecy that is hidden. How many of you can read the small print? How many of you have ever read Genesis chapter 5 and skipped right over it because it's almost as boring as the book of Numbers? No? Genesis chapter 5, what is it? It is a genealogy. Yay, everybody loves genealogy, right? It's a list of this person begot that person who begot that person, and he lived till he was 969 years old and had sons and daughters, and yay, move on to the next person. We get so totally bored with those things that we overlook what is hidden in the middle of it. How many of you have actually taken the time to study the names of the people from Adam to Noah? Most people don't. I wish we could do that study today, but we're not going to. We're just going to get you the highlights. Each of the names in, in Hebrew has a particular meaning. And the people were led to name their children in a manner that was prophetic. They didn't understand why they were naming their children sometimes. But God led them to name their children a specific name. And as you follow down these names, you get a message written from God in Genesis chapter 5. The entire gospel is right there. It says man appointed mortal or appointed to death. I can't read it. Sorrow. Given to sorrow. The blessed God shall come down teaching that his death shall bring the despairing rest. How many of you knew that the gospel was written in the Old Testament in Genesis? It's there. But you won't know it unless you actually take time to study the word. And that's why you have to, when you're studying the word, get other resources along with it. Get a Bible dictionary. Get a good concordance. Get things that will allow you to cross-reference scriptures. And to dig into the meanings. Because God has pointed names and places and times to give us an idea of what is going to happen. And what he is doing. And what he is doing in our lives right now. Go to the next slide, if you will, David. This is the one where we are going to spend most of our time over the next three weeks. Pattern. This is what the Jews see in prophecy. They see pattern as prophecy. Uh, a famous pastor over in Idaho says, pattern is prologue to the Jews. If you see something happen, it's going to be echoed throughout history. What we see here, um, things like God and the days of creation. How many days of creation are there? Were there seven days? On the eighth day, God rested. On the seventh day, God rested. On the eighth day, things began anew again. Yeah, good. So, uh, thank you for catching me. 
But there's a pattern there. So to the Jews, God laid it out that six days you're going to work, seven days you're going to rest. On the eighth day is the day that the men were supposed to be, the males were supposed to be circumcised. Eighth day, that's weird. It's a new beginning. But if you look throughout history, you know, despite of what the, the evolutionists will tell you, science is backing up the fact that the earth is about 6,000 years old. Six days of work, 6,000 years of history, seventh day rest. The Bible laid out that there's a seventh day coming, a thousand year period of rest known as the millennium. And then what happens? Well, the eighth day happens. That's the day of the new beginnings. And the book of Revelation tells us on that day, new heaven, new earth, time will be no more. There's a pattern that God has established from the beginning. We see that pattern also in the way that the Israelites camped in the wilderness. Um, we studied this in Sunday school, and for those of you that weren't there, I'm sorry, we'll, we'll maybe get this another day. But if you look at the way that God laid out the pattern, he told each tribe exactly where they had to camp around the tabernacle in the wilderness. And when you lay out that pattern on a map, on a grid, you see exactly what Balaam saw when he climbed to the top of that mountain and tried to curse Israel. And what you see is the camp of Israel laid out as a cross. He couldn't curse Israel because God told him you can't do that. There is prophecy in the pattern. We see the pattern in the care of the building and taking care of the maintenance of the tabernacle. Again, predictive of the work of Jesus Christ. And we studied that in Sunday school a couple of years ago. It was a great study. If you don't have that, Don has incredible notes on it. If you would like those, we can get them for you too. But Turn with me, if you will, to John chapter 3. Book of John, chapter 3. Everybody should know this particular passage because John chapter 3 has the most famous Bible verse in the world, John 3.16. But we're not just going to look there. We're going to look somewhere else. John chapter 3, a guy named Nicodemus not just a Pharisee, not just a ruler of the Jews, but Nicodemus was a man that was considered one of the teachers in all of Israel. Uh, at any given time, there they had just one or two teachers that would be the ones that they would go to for explanation of anything that they needed to have help with in the scriptures. That was Nicodemus. And Nicodemus coming to Jesus says, you know, they have this nice little conversation. Jesus doesn't give him a chance to talk a whole lot. He says, Nicodemus, you've got to be born again. And he goes through the entire process. But look down at uh, verse 14, I believe it is. Yep, here we go. Key verse, John three fourteen, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness... Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now that's a bizarre statement. If you don't understand things from the Jewish perspective that, oh, wait a minute, 
Jesus says he's going to be lifted up just in the same manner that Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. There must be a pattern that God has established right here for us. And we find that pattern in the book of Numbers, chapter 21. We're not going to turn there and take all day reading that. But in the book of Numbers, there were some fiery serpents that came among the Israelites because they were groaning and moaning and griping against God. So these serpents came in and bit people. And they were in incredible pain and died. And the, the people said, oh no, you know, we've sinned against God. Help us. So God told Moses to make an image of the fiery serpent, make it out of brass, and put it on a pole and hang it in front of the camp of the Israelites. And anybody that would look at that serpent hanging on that pole would be saved. Anybody that wouldn't, they were going to die. Period. Jesus was saying that that was a pattern of what was going to happen with him. Because we've all been bitten by the serpent. And each and every one of us has that poison of sin within us. And it is going to bring about death. The cure to that is exactly what Moses did there. An image of the snake. The snake being the image of sin. Jesus Christ, the one that was made sin for our account, being hung on a cross is the cure to our sin problem and can save us from that death. That's the picture that we have in the Old Testament. So those are the three types of prophecy that we're going to cover. A prophetic statement. Um, the prophet proclaims that something specific will happen, and it does. Hidden prophecies, messages embedded in names and places and other things throughout the scripture. And prophetic patterns. God lays out a specific object or event that foretells a greater fulfillment. That's what we're going to be looking at for the next couple of weeks in prophecy in the Old Testament. Next week we are going to be looking at Genesis chapter 22. The Bible readings that we have this week in the bulletin will help you for that. If you get a chance, read the whole thing. It's great. And move on because there's other good stuff there too. But what does this mean to me? Why did I bother even going through this today? This matters to me for two points. The first, stop and think about it. God loves you and me enough to lay out everything in history in advance so that we can find confidence and comfort in his word. Uh, most of you know that for the last couple of weeks I've been down and out with some serious infection and uh, had to get my teeth pulled. Um, not a fun experience. But um, one of the things that I was dealing with was a really nasty infection. And you, you're probably glad you didn't see me when my face was swelled out to here and my lip was curled over and everything was yellow and ugly. 
the dentist didn't like it when she saw it either. And um, she basically flat out said, if we don't treat this, you're going to die. Period. Well, uh, to say, say the, the least about it, I ended up with two teeth being pulled and two being patched over temporarily. Um, and not a fun process, but the dentist, the two dentists that I dealt with um, were very comforting and helpful during the whole process. And they understood that I was in pain and uncomfortable with what had to be done. Didn't want to go through it at all, but they knew that it was necessary. And from the beginning of the process and all the way through, they told me step by step what was going to happen. They even showed me pictures of what the problem was and what needed to happen in order to resolve it. And they, as they worked, they continued to tell me exactly what they were doing because that was a comfort to me. So that I knew that everything was progressing according to the plan that we had laid out. And I could trust them because everything that they said was happening exactly as they said it was going to happen. And I knew that if it has happened that way so far, it's going to come out in the end with the result that we wanted, which was I was going to get rid of those two pain in the mouth and actually stay alive, which was a nice thing. This is exactly what God has done. That's what God has done for you and me right here. He's laid out the end from the beginning so that we know step by step what is going to happen. We see what he has done and we see what he is going to do and we can find comfort and confidence that he is faithful and he is going to do it and he is going to see us through to the end. The other point that you need to find from this is this big one. God means what he says. You ever stop to think about that? God means what he says. He says what he means. There was a guy named King Zedekiah, the last king of Judah. During his 11-year reign in Jerusalem, the priests of the temple and the king and all of the people ended up turning out to be more wicked than anybody before them, which was hard to do. And they did horrible things sinning in the sight of God. False prophets came to Zedekiah and said, see, God isn't doing anything about this. God loves us. Everything's going to be fine. But two prophets came to him, two guys named Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And they said, God's not happy. In fact, um, God's going to punish you. And... Zedekiah believed the false prophets. They were mocking God because the word of God in their eyes didn't make sense. Jeremiah had said, King Zedekiah, you're going to go away into captivity in Babylon. And you're going to die there. But Ezekiel had said, King Zedekiah, you're never going to see Babylon. Well, that's conflicting. Ha, God can't even get his own prophecies straight. I'm not even going to listen to these guys. 
but God was 100% accurate. We hear this and see this in, uh, at the end of 2 Kings. When Zedekiah rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, he was captured and taken to a, another city, but not at Babylon at that point. He was taken to a place in Riblah where he saw the king face to face, just like Jeremiah had said he was going to. And at Riblah, King Nebuchadnezzar brought his family out before him and killed them all in front, of his, uh, in front of his face. And then he gouged out his eyes so that he couldn't see anymore. And then he put him in chains and he carried him off to Babylon where he died, fulfilling exactly what Ezekiel had said would happen too, that he would not see Babylon, literally. He died there, but he didn't see it. Why do I tell you this? If you gain nothing at all from prophecies that you read in the Bible, get this point. God is faithful. And he has done everything that he said he will do, and he is going to do everything that he said he will do. He will not fail to accomplish it, period. So I want to end today, and we're going to get out right about later than I expected, sorry. When I went back to the dentist, um, I had a decision to make. I could have said, gee, I'm comfortable with my face being swollen up and this uh, pain. No, I wasn't comfortable with it. I could have said, gee, I don't like the idea of you digging around and pulling things out. I definitely don't like the idea of dentists and oh boy I hate needles and ask my wife about that uh, yeah just awful I could have said no I, I think I can do better I can go find something else I'll, I'll take care of this myself and what would have been the end result I wouldn't have lasted long instead I got the diagnosis and the treatment plan and I trusted the doctors that they were going to be faithful in following the plan that they had outlined. And I believed that they would, said they would do what they said they would and we, they would bring me healing. And that's the same decision that every person has to make with God. We can reject the diagnosis that he's given us and the treatment that he has given and provided for us. Or we can trust him and take him at his word and place our faith in Jesus Christ to bring us that healing and to bring us life. So I want to end today with an invitation to you. If you haven't taken that step, if you haven't placed your fully in Jesus Christ for life, now is the time that you need to make that decision. God loves you enough that he has provided the way and he is faithful and he means what he says. And what he said is if you don't decide for Jesus, you've decided against him. And you will spend eternity away from him. But if you do want to make a decision for Jesus Christ and accept him as your Lord and Savior. And accept him as your life. You can have life eternal starting today. I'm going to have you stand and we're going to close in a word of prayer. But if you haven't made that decision, 
Today is the opportune day. Today is the day of salvation. And I, or Don, or Ben, or any of the other elders here will be glad to talk to you and tell you how you can have that personal relationship with our loving God through Jesus Christ. Let's bow our head in a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you loved us so much that you laid out everything for us from A to Z that we can know ahead of time what's coming and find great comfort and joy and peace, confident that you are going to do everything that you said you were going to do for us. So as we've trusted in you, Jesus, we are confident that you're going to fulfill it. You're going to see us through to the end. It's not anything that we do. It's not of our own works. Jesus, it's only you. But I pray, Lord, that if there's, not, if there's one here that has not put their, their faith in you, let this be that day. Touch our hearts with your word. Give us full confidence in you, Jesus, that we trust you with everything. Go with us through this week and gather us together again next week if you do not return before then, that we can worship you and celebrate together on the next Lord's Day. For we ask it, Jesus Christ, in your holy name.